Hello, this is Patrick, and it's time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source for high-quality, organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. Over the past 40 years, herbalism has seen a rebirth thanks to the passionate and dedicated master herbalists like godmother of American herbalism, Rosemary Gladstar. Today we're talking with Rosemary about her journey on the path of plants and the face of modern herbal practice. Now here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, herbalism Radio. Radio. <laughs> Today, Rosemary, we are so thankful to have you here. You are someone that has been, dare I say it, revered as one of the elders of herbal tradition in America. So we're just, we're really thrilled to have you here mm-hmm. to talk with us about herbalism. Suck in some of that wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored and humbled, actually. <laughs> yeah. So you started with herbalism long before it was hip. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, tell, no. tell us about that. Well, I was one of those fortunate young people that grew up in a very poor family. We were farmers in Northern California, and my grandmother, who was actually a survivor of one of the genocides, her particular one was the Armenian genocide, um, she grew up near me, or I grew up near her, and um, she had a huge influence on my life, and she was actually an Armenian herbalist, and she felt it was like her duty to inform her children and her grandchildren about her about her journey, you know, and she, she used to tell us when we were children growing up, it was her her love and knowledge of the plants and her faith in God that saved her life. And she really literally meant that when they had nothing to eat, she knew how to eat the wild plants. And when there was no faith left, she had faith. And I think those two powerful lessons are, you know, lessons I took deeply to heart. I also just want to add that I think in all of the old traditions of herbalism, um, it's passed down through the ancestors. You know, it comes down usually to the grandparents because the parents are so busy taking care of, you know, their families and mm-hmm. trying to work and teach us, you know, survival skills that it's well, traditionally been the grandparents who have had the leisure to teach their grandchildren how to be better humans, you know, right. as far as the craft and the tradition of being human beings. And herbalism was generally a part of that tradition until fairly recently. So I think even even in modern in the modern world there's so many people who are called to herbalism, you know, through this genetic lineage that's ancient. And we just, you know, we've lacked grandparents and even parents who have known how to teach us even if they believed and loved plants and knew there was something there. That knowledge wasn't passed down to them. So, oh my goodness, I consider myself so fortunate that my grandmother survived and she survived intact. Her spirit was very strong and powerful in spite of the horrendous things that she saw in her life. And her love of the plants were partly what helped her survive and that she passed that down. So maybe that's why I'm so generous with the information. You know, it's just a gift that was given to me and I want to see it continue. Yeah, I know a couple of other people with Armenian heritage and they are, all of them are herbalists. And I think that 
that kind of oppression that they faced has strengthened their determination to preserve those healing traditions. I yeah, know. you know, I think that's part of it. I also think that when you're limited in refund in resources, financial resources, it just keeps, you know, people can either look at it as being, you know, poverty stricken. And sometimes it is that for certain, but oftentimes mm-hmm. it's a gift because it keeps people living close and simple. Like, so in my family, you know, the fact that we couldn't afford to go to the store and buy lots of groceries meant that we were eating from the garden constantly and and from the you know raw milk from our cows it wasn't necessarily that my parents were going we're going to eat healthy it was just a matter of lifestyle for us so in some ways there's a gift um if you turn around you know you always have to turn those challenges around to see them sometimes for what they really are but that's also i think part of it Oppression sometimes forces people to be very real and to be very connected mm-hmm. to the power sources still. And not right. take things for granted. And right. not take things for granted, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's that genetic drive is part of the what drives the do-it-yourself and the homesteading and the urban homesteading that we're seeing in younger generations. And we're all so thankful to you and the many others who have shared your knowledge. Yeah, thank you. You know, and I think it is important to say that to really – emphasize that I'm one of a community of people. Really, there was a large group of people my age that I think we were all sprouted at the same time, you know, with this seed of herbalism that just kind of came out of us. So, you know, people like, I'm thinking of people like Christopher Hobbs and David Hoffman and, uh, you know, Cascade Anderson and Amanda, uh, you know, Amanda McQuaid Crawford. And there's just a large group of people. and, And we all seem to have that incredible passion and drive to share it so i was one one of a community so how did you guys find each other well you know that's a great story it was we were kind of isolated really you know we were young people we were all in our 20s and we were doing things quietly in our communities um so like in northern community like in northern california i was maybe one of a small group of people and i would just hear like on that herbal grapevine you know i'd hear about somebody down in marin county who was doing herb walks and so it was in actually 1974 that I decided to hold a conference a gathering now I've never even had been to a conference certainly not an herb conference <laughs> so I you just decided it. I'll throw one together yeah. well you know what it was is I had gone to a spiritual retreat that was for um um Hari Das Baba who was Ram Das's teacher mm-hmm. and it was a group of people that were there you know and they were doing spiritual things and I thought we should do this for the plants so that was the inspiration believe it or not for it and I sent out an invitation to Jean Rose and Rob Menzies and Suevo Brooks there was a small group of people that I knew that were in Nan Kohler a very small group of people and that first weekend 50 people came which was a huge number when you look back in 1974 50 people who said we'll show up for the plants And we did, you know, actually the thing that's so interesting, we did exactly the same things we do now. We we had music, we sang, we held hands, we made circle, and we had these fantastic herb classes. And I really want to say, I think that was one of the unique things about American herbalism, is from the very beginning, we, we felt the need to gather in community and to learn from each other. So that's been a driving force of American herbalism, yeah. those early wildflower seeds that were planted. <laughs> Those are, yeah, that's amazing. I'm just, I sit here, I'm listening to you talk about that, and I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an inspired thing to start out. And then what did you do after that? What did you find that that inspired you to do? I mean, you've done so many amazing things since then. Uh 
It's part of a but, journey. What happened? Well, I mean, I was inspired by, I, you know, it was inspiring. And I really think it's the same thing. I think it was not a lot different than the same inspiration that somebody gets today when they go to an herb class. And they go, oh, my God, there's this world and I'm part of it. You know, it was that. And there's a group of people that I can really relate to. You know, I'm not quite the odd that I thought I was. Exactly. So, or, yeah. or be a better way of saying it. There's a huge group of oddballs out there. We all. <laughs> We're not as odd as we thought. There are actually some round holes. Yeah, that's such. Or some so, square holes. Yeah, and so it just inspired me to do it more. And so we uh, actually the next year we did it at the Four Seasons because living in Northern California could actually hold conferences during the Four Seasons, and they grew rapidly from 50 to 100 to 500 people those early gatherings. So really, even back in the 1970s, it was almost as soon as the invitation was sent out, it was answered. There were all these people who wanted to learn about plants, and we've just seen it grow. So, you know, and everything that I did wasn't, I always like to say it always started out really small um, and with never a big vision for it. It was always like, I just want to do this for my community, or I want to make these herbs for my in my herb store so that you know people can get better and it was never an intention to make a big company in fact when it grew into a big company I usually go oh that's too big for me and then I start over again you know just planting a tiny garden again and thankfully um, I've always had great visionaries who work with me and partner with me who are able to often take those visions to the next step so that's my good fortune and my gift, you know. <laughs> yeah, some of the companies that you help start, like traditional medicinal teas, is still going. And, in fact, it's something that many of us rely on for good teas. <laughs> for so were you medicine. one of the formulators for some of those teas? I was, yes, I actually was the co-founder of it. Um, my partner at that time, Drake Sadler, who still runs the company uh, or is one of the main people in it, mm-hmm. we had a little tiny herb store in Guerneville, um, like a home apothecary, because there were no, no, there was no place available for people right. to get herbs in Northern California. And so I mixed these herbs for my community, and they were very good, and people would come and get them. And Drake's vision was to take them out into the world. You have to remember, and this company was started in 19... 19- 74, I believe, in 1972. So there weren't any other medicinal herb companies, and so that was the drive. I wouldn't do it today, but there's so many things out there. But, you know, it was, well, we, you know, people want these teas, and they're, they're you know, so, so Drake really had a vision for taking them out into the world. And for me, it was like once the company started to get really big, I'm going, I don't want to be a businesswoman. I want to be an herbalist and just yeah. fix the plants. But I'm so thankful that that company you know, continued with its vision, and I, I feel that it has extremely good ethics. And so I did all of the original 13 blends, which, by the way, are still their best-selling blends to this So day. Gypsy Cold gypsy Care, cold is that you? Move, yeah. Uh, female <sighs> Drink so much of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then Throat Coat. Throat Coat, that was oh, man. See, yeah. that was one of the the teas that I always went to when I was starting on herbalism. Like, well, at least I know these work, so I'm going to I'm gonna try these. And I introduced myself to a whole bunch of new herbs via, apparently, your formulas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, it was, that's the one that I go to when I'm sick, because right. the guy's generally don't make herbal blends for me. So when it's they're sick, made. I make stuff for them. But when I'm sick, I'm like, go buy Gypsy Gold Care. It works. You know, it does. It works, yeah. it works really well. I, I wondered when I'd heard about 
the uh, tea company thing, and then I thought, oh, the gypsy, that's got to be, that's rosemary. <laughs> that's totally rosemary. <laughs> so as you've seen, you've helped so many businesses get started. You've seen herbalism starting to really bud and catch interest. What are you seeing in terms of the growth of, of the the discipline over the last, like, maybe 10 or 20 years? Yeah. Do you mean looking past or looking forward? Looking back. Yeah, looking moving back. From, moving from where you began, which was a very small collection of you guys who were really catching, bringing, shepherding herbalism yeah. into the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I, w- I want to share. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. I want to share that it's also important to realize that we were standing on the shoulders of our teachers, yes. and they were teaching at a time when it really wasn't popular, and you could hardly make a living doing it. So they were the really brave first people. I mean, people like Norma Myers and Dr. Christopher and Juliet de Berkeley Levy, and so many of the, of our elders that we had the great good fortune to study and work with. You know, and that's one of the things that I see in the younger people is they forget the lineage sometimes there there's a tendency to think that they are not standing that they're standing on their own shoulders and it's mm-hmm. never that way and especially with tradition and it's humbling and rewarding and it also feels so safe to know that you're really just following in this incredible lineage and if you have the vision and you look back you see that you're just you're just a seed a small seed in an enormous garden and you've been chosen you've been given the privilege um, you know, to, to carry something so ancient and so grand forward, it actually just makes brings tears to my eyes. So, but back to your question, you know, is that I was just amazed to see the way that herbalism has caught on. I actually want to say this is a pretty strong statement to say, but I think it's really true. I think we've affected healthcare in general in this country. I mean, you even look how the medical world, our allopathic system is today. It's very different than how it was practiced 20 years ago. Many yes. doctors are interested in nutrition. Nutrition was not even taught in the hospitals. Right. Many doctors are interested in alternative healthcare and acupuncture. And these were things that were not even discussed in the medical field 20 years ago, really. I mean, it was the rare doctor. Um, and today we see, especially the young doctors, but still some of the older doctors, they, they're co-working with herbalists, they're interested, they hold herbal programs in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And we have fabulous doctors like Dr. Tiarona Lodog and Dr. Vajil Ram, who are first and primary, first and foremost herbalists in their heart, but who are also doctors and many nurses too, who are herbalists, yes. nurses. So, you know, to see that is great. That's a beautiful thing because... You know, we do really need integrative medicine. We need medicine that is holistic, so it includes everything that works at the appropriate time. But even more exciting to me is just to watch the way the American public is waking up to their traditions, you know, and going, hey, you know, I have a headache. Maybe I don't have to take aspirin for that. Maybe I could try, you know, Skullcap or lavender or Feverfew. Maybe these herbs aren't so toxic as a pharmacist, you know, as the doctors told us and we've been warned. You know, so that's what's really exciting to me. Susan Weed says it so beautifully. She she makes a statement where she says it's exciting to see the medical field using herbs, but what's even more exciting is to see children taking herbal plantain or boo salve and putting it on their, their salves because that means that herbalism, which is the primary, the best people's medicine we have, you know, it's inexpensive, it's safe, it's available, it's eco- ecologically sound, is, you know, the American public is waking up to it again. And that's what's really exciting to me, you know. Yeah, and it's bringing see- empowerment back to the American public, too, where before they relegated their health care to people that they didn't know very well, 
And now people understand a lot more about, one, how their bodies work, and then, two, how plants work and how they interact. And that's, that's empowering on many different levels. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see people reclaiming their freedom. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's so true. Yeah. And responsibility. You know, when, when you said empowerment, like I want to say in slash, I want to say empowerment slash responsibility because, you know, I think that's one thing that we see in this country more than other countries is people want to give up responsibility for everything. You know, yeah. they don't want to assume responsibility. And, um, and we are responsible for our own health. We're responsible when our lakes aren't clean. We're responsible for allowing the medical profession to claim our health care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody did that. We allowed it to happen, and the only way we get it back is to take it back. <laughs> yes, yes. Spoken like a true activist. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear a lot. I know that you're a writer, and you have a lot of things that you've done for organizing. But it's your activism that I'm very intrigued with too. How has that inspired some of the projects that you're doing today? Well, you know, I don't really see myself as an activist as more of just an active. I'm just active. I want to see. I mean, I guess that is. I never really put that. I love that title and I'd be honored to call myself that. But it's just when you see that something needs to change, Mm -hmm. that you do something about it. And it's scary for a lot of people because oftentimes you may have a small group of people cheering you on. But more often you have a large group of people that are calling you names and throwing things at you. You know, and it's that way even when I first started working with plants. You know, there was a small group of people who thought it was fabulous and a large group of people who thought we were crazy. My -hmm. parents, who I loved dearly, you know, when they saw the field I was going in, when they saw me wandering through the field, you know, of course they loved that it was a hobby, but when they thought I was going to try to earn my life doing it, they were concerned, you know, as all (laughs) parents would be. Like, you know, Rosemary, there's no profession and how are you going to earn a living? It was like, (gasps) You know, so so my activism, I think, comes more from responsibility of feeling like we are responsible human beings. And and I totally believe in that very cliche statement that, you know, be the change you want to see and stop bitching about it. (laughs) (laughs) The appropriate word, because bitching is a really good word. So, you know, know, keep bitching about it and try to do something about it. Um, I think it's good to be a bitch, actually. <laughs> I try to be more of one sometimes. Here I'm talking about in a very positive form, of course, you know, in that sense that something's uncomfortable and you need to speak out about it. And mm-hmm. it gets a negative connotation like the word witch does, but truly, which is a powerful word, and it means the wise woman and the herbalist. So, right. so you know, it was, I would say, my, my maybe my first activism started when I opened an herb store and started bringing herbs out into the world because it, they weren't there, you know, and mm-hmm. people needed them, and and, uh, and just showing up every day, every day in that herb store and cleaning the shelves. I mean, that's an act of activism, right? Right, yeah. Steadfast, that's a big it's, part of being a good activist. So yeah. what did that herb store turn into? It's still there on the main street of Sebastopol. It's run by other people, of course, and Mm -hmm. it's a healing center and a place where people come for information and help and place to get herbs. You know, I think I think the things that I've been most proud of for myself is, you know, recognizing that. And I wasn't the only one, again, I want to say it was a community of people who stood up and became a voice for the plants. But as we saw herbalism start to become popular and our tidy companies like traditionals and herb farm and 
you know, Herbalist and Alchemist and, you know, all of those amazing companies, Frontier Herbs, as we saw them start to become large companies and become successful and actually earn an income, mm-hmm. we began to recognize that all of the plants that we were using, not all, but many of them, were coming from wild sources or else being harvested in, you know, developing countries that had very, very poor standards. And so we began to really look at that issue. Are we sustainable really as a industry mm-hmm. are we really promoting sustainable herbalism mm-hmm. and i have to say when we you know none of us had really looked at the plant communities you know we maybe individually we'd noticed that when we went back to our harvesting you know our harvesting habitats that the plants weren't there in such abundance but we really didn't talk about it and it was actually in 1994 at the international herb symposium we met with a small group of herbalists, you know, I, I called a meeting and I just, it was with a question, is this something we need to be concerned about? And if so, what is it that we want to do? Mm-hmm. And out of that question, we formed this very small nonprofit. None of us had worked for a nonprofit. None of us knew how to start it. None of us, all of us had <laughs> avoided boards because they sounded very boring. Yep. <laughs> we, we created this very amazing organization that's become not only a national voice but has also helped to create an interest in plant cultivation in other countries as well and it changed the discussion from you know not only what it is the plants can do for us but really what it is that we can do to ensure that these plants are here mm-hmm. for future generations of plant lovers certainly but more importantly for the earth itself and the plant communities and so yeah. Yeah, we think we've done a good job. We have a lot more work to do for all those listeners who want to get involved. United Plant Savers has been a real resource for me back when I was a a, a, uh, buyer who used the resources that that you guys had out of Plants to Watch, etc. And um, I wonder if that's become a guideline just internationally, not just... You know, it has. Now, our list... The United Plant Savers at Risk List focuses on North American, so that's um, uh, United States and Canada plants. Mm-hmm. The reason that we didn't become a, we didn't want to do an international is because we were a small group of people with extremely limited funds, and we wanted to be effective. So again, it's starting with a small seed, mm-hmm. and then as we've grown, and we're still a small group, but it is you know we reached our I think two thousand. We have over two thousand members. We have over a thousand acres and plant sanctuary across the United States. So that's I heard about that one. Yeah, yeah it's really exciting. Yeah, and tell us about that. Well, you know, we have two sanctuary programs. We have um, we have the Golden Seal Sanctuary, which is, you know, I think one of our great gifts to American herbalism, and it's a an incredible three hundred acre farm located mm-hmm. in uh, the Appalachian Range. So it's in a plant rich, the pl- most plant rich range in the United States. Mm-hmm. And almost every plant you know, at least three-fourths of the plants that are on the at-risk list grow there natively and are actually abundant there. So mm-hmm. plants like golden seal and ginseng, blood, bloodroot, and the cohoshes, I mean, you just find them on this property. And this property was actually donated to us by uh, two amazing visionaries, uh, Michael and Judy Funk, who happen to have a lot of stocks in the health food industry, and stocks are really high, and they gave us a bunch, and they multiplied, and we were able to get that you know, it was, a, it was a gift from spirit. We were able mm-hmm. to buy this property and put it into, you know, uh, forever conservation easements as a plant sanctuary. And it's open to the public. Um, people can go there and hold classes. It's just a remarkable, remarkable facility. But that, I'm excited about that sanctuary, but I'm far more excited about our member sanctuary, which is encourages our members, whether they have 
you know, a backyard in a city, whether they have a, you know, a small plot in town, whether they have a farm, to put their land in sanctuary. And, you know, when you really start to explore what sanctuary means, it means sacredness. Sanctuary is sacred. It means we begin to restore sacredness to our land. And it also, the UPS sanctuaries are about planting wildness back. So even if it's just a, you have maybe a big lawn full of beautiful gardens, you take a small part of that and you replant it in the wild, Um, the native plants, the native medicinals. Because in restoring wildness, what we're discovering is it helps to restore health and vitality to the land. And if the land is healthy, of course, we're healthy. And, you know, it's amazing what happens, too, when when you do this, is when you establish... Even you even replant a few of the native plants in your, and especially the medicinal plants. The native pollinators start coming back. Yes. You stop yes. Yeah, you've seen that happen. Oh yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. I'm also part of the master gardeners here, and it's pretty amazing how many plants and and critters and things have become part of this little utopia. By just pulling out the juniper bushes that are not native in this area junking out the yard and putting in some Oregon grape and some of the bleeding heart and stuff like that. And when I first moved into my house 17 years ago, I had a butterfly that visited that summer. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And now there's bees and hummingbirds and butterflies and all kinds of cool little critters. And it's, of course, not poisoning the place with pesticides and herbicides is a big one, but giving them something to eat and enjoy. And it's and it. You know, when people walk along on the sidewalk, they stop in their tracks and, and stop and look over the fence and just marvel at the things that are growing there with the elderberry. And, you know, it makes their life better, too. It's so delicious. That just fills my soul to overflowing. You know, and it, it's also such a statement of the remarkable power that we have. You know, like all we have to do is replant our backyards. You know, it's that simple, and it can be so profound. Mm-hmm. And when we talk, when we wonder about what is it that we can do for the bees and the butterflies and the plants, just as simple and and as active a thing as, you know, planting a garden is some of the strongest activism we can do. And we don't burn out when we do that. We get restored. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I like, that's how I do my activism, how I stand in, the, in those front lines and have stood there for 40 years is, doing it the beauty way because it's such a powerful way and it really does make a huge difference. It's so healing and it also prevents burnout. <laughs> yes, that's true. Which and is we, actually really crucial. It is it's really crucial. Especially <laughs> when you're an active activist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for speaking with us, Rosemary. And I want to remind listeners that they can check out Rosemary's website at sagemountain.com. The United Plant Savers, sorry, the United Plant Savers website is unitedplantsavers.org. You can find out information on the International Herb Symposium at internationalherbsymposium.com or the Women's Herb Conference, which is this August 28th through 30th at womensherbalconference.com. Be sure to look for Rosemary's books and her home study course, The Science and Art of Herbalism. For more information, links, and resources we mentioned on this program, check out our show notes on realherbalismradio.com. Make sure you sign up for our free newsletter, which includes links on upcoming recipes, how-tos, 
newly published ebooks, and more detailed information on topics we discussed on this podcast as we publish them on thepracticalherbalist.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Pinterest, and join us in our conversations on Twitter. Now it's time for Herbalism and Homesteading News. Hey, everyone. I am super excited about a new website that Sue brought to us. Sue, do you want to tell us a little bit about Herb Rally? Yes, this is a website in which you can find out where all of the newest herb symposiums and conferences, uh, a whole bunch of different workshops are listed there. And the gentleman that has put this together is named Mason Hutchinson, and he is a um, a person that lives in Eugene, Oregon here, and he also helps us at Occupy Medical. And right. he is just the nicest guy. He works for Mountain Rose Herbs and is just one of those people that truly believes it's important for people to get a good education about uh, herbs and natural living, and that will make our world a better place. He's just you know, he's our kind of guy. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he does the events and outreach coordinator for mountain rose. Yeah. So he's in touch with a lot of people. There's a lot, there's mm-hmm. probably many of our listeners who may have had, you know, brushed time with him yes. in, in their contact and their business with mountain reserves and, and the various groups that they support. Yeah. So Mason's put together a site here. That's looking like it's still young, but it, it's looking like it's got a lot of neat stuff on there. He's not just covering events. He's also covering distance learning courses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. herbs in the media and things like our podcast is on there. Yeah. I'm astounded and excited to say. <laughs> I know. It's so great. So yeah. Yeah. So he knows where things are. And if you send him uh, information about your event, then he'll put that on there as well. And I was tickled because I saw the class that you taught uh, Candace know, was on right? there. I mean, our, cool? little, our little projects. And then yeah. I have an upcoming herb walk that i I didn't even send him, but, you know, he's my Facebook friend. So he took note of that and put it on himself. So he really is reaching out and making sure that people know where things are happening and where they can get more information and education on this. It's a real asset. And I love his um, herbs, his section on schools and distance learning includes places like there's an Australian college of phytotherapy. I hope I I said that right, but it's an Australian school. It's so awesome. Yeah. yeah, So it's it's really a global page and it's, and it's very new, very raw right Mm -hmm. now. And yet even for that, I know, I know, and you know as well what it's like to do work behind the scenes on these things. So in progress. this, This promises to be a really helpful site for furthering your own education through yeah. events, through learning, through schools, through mm-hmm. various recommendations, media. Yes. It's great. Most definitely. Herbalism 101. This is part of the show where Sue and Candace answer a listener question or teach you about an herbal definition or term covering basic to advanced herbal knowledge. If you would like the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. If we choose your question for the show, we will send you a free PDF ebook, Natural Nutrition by The Practical Herbalist, currently available for $4.99 at The Practical Herbalist store. Here's Candace and Sue to discuss this show's Herbalism 101 topic. Today's question comes from Raina. Raina asks, I'm not an herbalist, but have been using herbs to treat the most common health issues in my family with herbs. Every time my seven-year-old son has some problem, I'm not sure 
whether I use the right potency for herbal tea or tincture. Could you explore the most common way of estimating the right dosage when we give herbs to children? That's a really good question. When my son was little, I worked with an herbalist myself that she gave me a really simple one, which was to assume that any dosage that you would have, like let's say you're trying to get rid of a fever and your dosage for the yarrow tincture you're using is two dropperfuls. Mm -hmm. Assume that's a dosage for a 150-pound adult. Mm -hmm. So if your kid is... 10 years old and weighs about 75 or 80 pounds, then you would give them half the adult dose, which would be one dropper full. Mm-hmm. So it's it makes an easy, very rough calculation. When you start getting into the younger years, kids are a lot more sensitive. So you're going to have to know your kid and know your kid's um, likelihood of reacting quickly right? and always go lighter. Yeah, and uh, going the other way for people that are elderly, their immune mm-hmm. system can be very, very sensitive. So giving yeah. them a lighter dosage as well. And we are including in our show notes a link that can... Um, answer by age approximately what a good dosage is for teas. For instance, for the seven-year-old, um, they're talking about for an adult, you would have a, a cup, which is an eight-ounce uh, cup of tea. And for a seven- to 11-year-old, we're talking two tablespoons. But keep in mind, this also varies from uh, herb to herb. For chamomile tea, for a kid that doesn't show any signs of allergies or etc., I would just put you know, a few spoonfuls in their little bottle or whatever they're drinking and not worry about it. But for a little higher dosage, like an astringent, as you said, with yarrow, mm-hmm. then uh, I would really follow exactly what this dosage says here. Sure. So, and then I know that the average seven-year-olds can sometimes be quite a bit bigger than what they're describing here. Yeah, the that's why I, that's is, why I really liked that doing it based on the pounds that your kid weighs. Right. Rough estimate. The herbalist that told me that was a nurse who she said that that's how pharmaceuticals are Correct. dosed out. So when you read the bottle back of your acetaminophen bottle and it says you know one to two tablets for mm-hmm. an adult, they're talking about a hundred and fifty pound adult. Correct. So for someone who's considerably larger than a hundred and fifty pounds, pounder, then you need yeah. to double you, that you can, dose. Yeah, you can go as much as twice that dose. Right. But after talking to but the, yeah, the often physician. Be yeah. careful, yeah. Right. Exactly. So, because there can be some mitigating circumstances as well, someone that has problems with their liver or their immune compromised, or etc. Right. There's as as usual with these questions. There's no easy answer. Right. right. So with tinctures, uh, normally uh, they say in this one a normal dose would be two droppers full, which is sixty drops. I. I disagree with that. I think that normally a dosage would be one dropper full. But that, again, can vary from practitioner to practitioner. So they still have uh, down here a basic idea about how much you should give someone in drops. And and it's just really important to um, keep in mind what where the person is, not just in their weight, but how they react to different things. Thank you for listening to Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. If you're feeling social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepracticalherbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms Practical Herbalist. This show has been sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. You can visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us 
through our website at realherbalismradio.com slash contact. Until next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and The Practical Herbalist.